Amen. You all could be seated. And one of the things that is very valuable if you're a Christian is to study Jewish history because it is there we find the roots of our own Christian faith. I learned some things as I studied about Jewish memorials and, and holidays this week that often at those memorials, they read books of Scripture in their entirety. Uh, for instance, at Passover, they read the Song of Songs. At Pentecost, they read the book of Ruth at their celebrations. At the Feast of Booths, Ecclesiastes, and who knows what festival they read the book of Esther at. Feast of Purim, which recalls God's deliverance of them from the wicked designs of Haman, right? Well, guess what? This year, mid-July, Jews around the world gathered together to remember Tisha B'Av, to remember the destruction of their temple. Not once, but twice. First in 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians, and second in A.D. 70 at the hands of Titus, the Roman general. Every year when they do this, they read the words of Lamentations, which begins as we read, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. J. Vernon McGee, one of my all-time favorite Bible teachers, looked at this book and, and he said, it is a poem of pity, a proverb of pathos. It is a hymn of heartbreak, a psalm of sadness, a symphony of sorrow, and a story of sifting. Lamentations is the wailing wall of the Bible. I want to take us through a couple things before I answer the why question, because I know there's some of you sitting here saying, why in the world are you doing this book? It's the holidays. Thanksgiving is about to come, and then Christmas. Are you nuts? Some of you might be wondering that. That's okay. I'll answer that in a few moments. But first, I want to give us a little history so we understand the, the setting of this book. We, we go back in time to the B.C. era, 1050 to 930 B.C. Israel was in what we now call the United Kingdom. All 12 tribes were under the rule of one king, David and then Solomon. Many at this time in history that Jeremiah writes would look back at that as the glory days of Israel. But in 930, the nation divided. Ten tribes formed the northern kingdom we call Israel, and two formed the southern kingdom we call Judah, the capital of which is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. 722 B.C., the Assyrian army came and attacked the northern kingdom, scattered the ten tribes around the world. 586 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was invaded and destroyed, and the southern kingdom went into exile at the hands of Babylon. That one is the one related to our book. It was about six centuries before Jesus' earthly ministry, 
It was followed by a promised return about 70 years later. And then we have 400 years of prophetic silence, which lead us up to where we began in the book of Mark over a year ago, the, the birth of Jesus and John the Baptist stepping on the scene. But I want to talk a little bit about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Who knows who the world's superpower was at that time? Babylon. They were in power in 70 A.D., 586 B.C. It was Babylon. Wicked, idolatrous Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar. You may recognize that name. For years they had been attacking Israel and, and taking people away back to Babylon. Finally they surrounded the capital city of Jerusalem. For one and a half years they surrounded the city. And as you read the book of Lamentations, you'll get a taste of the carnage that happened at that time because they were surrounded. After one and a half years, in the summer of 586 B.C., they finally breached the walls and came in. They destroyed, they, they looted what they wanted. And I want you to listen to the climax of the destruction as described by Charles Dyer, biblical scholar. He said, the armies of Babylon burned the temple, the king's palace, and all the other major buildings in the city. They tore down the walls of the city, which provided her protection. When the Babylonians finally finished their destruction and departed with their prisoners, they left a jumbled heap of smoldering rubble. It was with all these events stamped vividly on his mind that Jeremiah sat down to compose his series of lamentations. Now there are a number of things recorded four times in the Bible. I'm not going to claim to list them all. The, the feeding of the 5,000 plus by the multiplication of fish and loaves, that's in there in all four Gospels. The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's in all four Gospels, and then repeatedly in the epistles, of course. The fall of Jerusalem is recorded four times as well. Warren Wearsby, author, Tells us 2 Kings 25, 2 Chronicles 36, Jeremiah 39, and Jeremiah 53. That doesn't even include lamentations four times. What should we do when something is recorded four times in Scripture? Pay close attention. Why is it repeated four times? I believe it teaches Israel and you and I today a couple important lessons. The, the horrid consequences of unrepented sin, as well as their desperate need and our desperate need for a Savior, a Messiah, to save us from that sin. Now, I want to talk about the author. I believe it's Jeremiah, largely because Jewish tradition believes it's Jeremiah. Also, because if you read the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations, there are many similar phrases. Also, there was no one better suited. He was there at the time. He preached to this city. And we read what I believe are Jeremiah's words as an eyewitness of the destruction. What was his life like? Well, Jeremiah 1.1 tells us that he was one of the priests in Israel. 
But God had a different plan for his life. He, he picked Jeremiah to be one of his prophets. And you hear that and you might think, hey, that's a nice gig, being a prophet. And they probably honored him and, and loved him and thanked him for preaching God's word. Not, not if you, you know your Bible. There were many prophets who, as they spoke the word of God, were arrested, imprisoned, and killed because many times people do not want to hear the word of God. He ministered for about 40 long years. 40 long years preaching the truth of God to his nation. He started out with a really good king on the throne. You may have heard of a king named Josiah. Josiah was a righteous king. At a time when Israel was turning away from God, Josiah led a revival to turn the hearts of the people back. Jeremiah was so close to him that 2 Chronicles 35.25 tells us Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. It's a different lament than Lamentations, but he wrote a song of lamenting when Josiah, his friend, died. And after Josiah, there were four kings that I will call scallywags. I, I call them the Jay-Z kings because of their names. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah. And during all of their reigns, Jeremiah pled with them and for the city to repent of their sin, but to no avail. And once they crossed the point of no return in God's plan, he promised that judgment was coming. He was mocked, derided, arrested, and the predicted destruction came. Lamentations is Jeremiah pouring out his heart of grief for the city and the people that he so loved. Let's, let's do a quick overview of that little book. Five chapters. Takes about half an hour to read. We invited you to do that in the email this week. If you haven't, I encourage you to do it to get the full impact of this writing. Five chapters. In Hebrew, the book was called How. Because chapters 1, 2, and 4 all start with the Hebrew word for how. But it's an emotional how. How lonely lies the city. How. We call it lamentations, which comes from the Latin for funeral dirge. Because this is a funeral dirge for the, the city that Jeremiah loved. Any teachers in the room? How many of you all use acrostics with letters to help, help people remember things? Perhaps the alphabet? Yeah, a couple. One interesting thing about the book of Lamentations is Jeremiah did the same thing. Chapters 1 through 4 all use the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Bet, etc. So that the first verse starts with Aleph, the second verse starts with Bet, and on down. The third chapter does the same thing, except for each letter has three verses. You say, why? Well, many believe for one thing, for the same reason you teachers do it, to help the Jews remember. They memorize their scriptures to, to help them remember. Psalm 119 is the same thing, except each letter has eight verses. It was a, a memory aid. Some speculate that maybe Jeremiah was so filled with grief that this structure enabled him to focus and, and put his grief into intelligible words. I don't know about that. Uh, another suggestion that's out there 
that resonated with me is that basically this structure shows the A to Z, the, the completeness of his grief, of, his, of the destruction, of the discipline that was upon Jerusalem at this time. As I look at the five brief chapters in Lamentations, I, I notice some themes. And some of these themes overlap chapter to chapter. But chapter one, which we'll talk about today, I see the theme of groaning. Groaning. It comes up five times in chapter one. Chapter two, I, I see him highlighting the fact that this was God's discipline. Chapter three, I see him highlighting real hope. Real hope for the people. How many of you knew that great is thy faithfulness, that hymn that's probably a favorite of many of you? It comes from Lamentations chapter 3. In fact, when we get there, that week is going to be November 28th, Thanksgiving weekend. I want to invite you to think about sharing a one or two minute testimony up here. I'm going to preach, but then I want to hear one or two minute testimonies where you have seen God's faithfulness in the middle of the darkness in your life. If you want to share something, call me, email me at scott at churchnextdoorazcom We need to talk first so we can line it up. But I would love for some of you to share that week. It, chapter 3 is like a, a precious diamond of hope in the middle of this dark, dark cave. Okay, Chapter 4, I see the theme of false hope. Places they turned that they shouldn't have turned. In chapter 5, which is the only one that is not in that alphabetical pattern, it says prayer for restoration. A prayer for restoration. So that's the outline. Now I come to the big question. Why? Why lamentations? Some of you might even be saying, why the Old Testament? Because there's been a lot of uh, misunderstanding about the Old Testament that somehow that is not all that important in the life of the Christian Believer, I want to suggest to you, if that's your understanding, not only do you not know the Old Testament, you do not know the New Testament very well either. Why do I say that? Because in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul talks about Israel's journey in the wilderness, he tells that church of Christians at Corinth that these things are written down as examples for us. Okay? Now, maybe you say, okay, I get the wilderness and maybe the creation and the flood and some of that early stuff, but really diving into lamentations? Really? Guess what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16? He says, all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. The Old Testament is every bit the inspired word of God that the New Testament is. And if we don't dive in there as Christians, we are living a truncated Christian life. So that's why the Old Testament. But even if you're amen in that, you may still be saying, why lamentations? Why? Why? Right now. Leading up to Christmas here. Well, think about this. After all of this darkness and destruction... And after 400 years of prophetic silence, maybe, maybe we can understand just a little bit more just why the priest Zechariah burst into song in Luke chapter 1 as he learned of what God was going to do by sending Mary a baby. Maybe we'll start to get why Mary herself in that same chapter burst into song after all of this darkness and waiting and praying. 
So my prayer is I, I want to join Jeremiah in his longing, in his tears, and in his hope. And I, I, I hope that as we do that, it will maybe make the real meaning of Christmas stand out that much more this year as, as it comes around once more. The hope and the, the promise of the birth of our Savior and all that flowed out of it. So chapter 1. So the theme I saw there was groaning. How many of you would confess that in this fallen world you do some groaning from time to time? I'm with you. I'm with you. Sometimes it's little things. Like yesterday I was up at the park playing with the boys and we made this new version of Frisbee golf where you kick the kickball from the top of the hill at the park and then we had this one of those arrow discs and we take turns throwing the arrow disc wherever the ball went and, and whoever got it there in the least amount of throws, that's your, that, you write down your score. And it was fun until one time uh, one of the kids threw the Frisbee up the hill and there was a big tree up there and the Frisbee got stuck in the tree. I groaned. And then we said, hey, we got a basketball. Let's throw the basketball up in the tree. We threw the basketball up in the tree. It stuck. <laughs> I groaned again. We had to send Evan up the tree to get both the Frisbee and the basketball. Sometimes it's little things like that. Sometimes it's much bigger things. Tragedies, pains, hurts, wounds, things we walk through that cause us to groan deeply. I see groaning in chapter 1 in five verses. Uh, verse 4, if you want to scan along. Roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Verse 11, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Verse 21, they heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. Verse 22, let all their evil doing Come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me. My groans are many and my heart is faint. Some of you know the different areas of theology in the Christian faith. Let me, let me throw out a little pop quiz here. Who knows what theology proper is? What is theology proper the study of? The study of God. Yes, what is Christology? Study of Christ. What is pneumatology? The study of the Holy Spirit. I want to present a new category of theology today. I'm going to call it groanology. <laughs> groanology, okay? For two reasons. The first is less important. It is true to life. We already all raised our hand and said, yes, we groan. But far more importantly than that, I typed in the word groan in a search engine for the ESV Bible. That word in some form came up 40 times. 40 times, y'all. Not just in the Old Testament either. New Testament too. After Christ, groaning runs through the Bible. Listen, our theology, whatever you believe as a Christian, needs to allow room for groaning 
in this fallen world. We cannot teach some kind of theology that requires Christians to put on some kind of fake plastic smile and always pretend like nothing hurts and everything is okay because that's unbiblical. Groaning runs through the text of Scripture as long as we live in this fallen world. So I want to invite us, maybe you came in groaning about some things in your own life, weighty things this morning. I want to invite us to own the groan. Let's admit it to each other, okay? We all groan. Let's stop putting on the mask and stop pretending like we're all okay in this fallen world because sometimes we groan. There are warnings to be sure, especially in the New Testament, not to cross into bitterness as we groan, not to to cross into unbelief or hardness of heart. But listen, how many of us know that sometimes groaning and the tears that come with it is the only fitting response for what we're going through at a certain moment? Remember Inside Out, the, the Pixar movie? A little girl had five emotions in her head, all personified, joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. And the joy in her head was not biblical joy. She was just happy, 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 happy. Biblical joy has peace and strength and fortitude, but it allows room for tears. But you remember how shocked the other emotions were when, as the little girl remembered a painful memory, and the sadness emotion came to her and helped her cry. The other emotions stood there in awe as they learned that only sadness at that moment and the tears she brought could help bring healing to what she was feeling. They were onto something. There are times we need to groan in this life. There are times we need to cry. So as we talk about our groanology, I want to give us eight biblical causes for groaning. Just we're just going to hit them fast. I promise you this is probably not all of them but as I look through those verses that include groaning in the Bible I saw eight causes of groaning in this world and maybe you relate to one or all of these the first one bottom line we just live in a a fallen world anytime you encounter suffering or death of any kind that can bring a groan Romans 8 22 we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We live in a fallen world. That's one reason we all groan. Joel 1.18, in a prophecy to Israel in her time of unfaithfulness, he says, how the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. You say, why the animals if it's man and woman that sin? Because we are stewards. This whole creation groans. It groans for the day of redemption. Second, broken down bodies that cause us to long for perfect ones. Anybody want to amen that? (laughs) That's in that same passage. Romans 8, 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies. Paul gets more specific about this in 2 Corinthians 5.2. As he talks about our bodies here, he says, in this tent, we groan, 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. You know what Paul teaches in Corinthians? That one day for believers, this body of weakness is going to be raised a body of power. This body of dishonor is going to be raised a body of glory. This body that is perishable is going to be raised imperishable. Listen to what he says. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. That part's important. The Christian hope, if you know your theology, is not that one day our spirit's just going to go to be with God. That's true. It's also this body (laughs) is going to be made immortal. Every pain you're feeling in this world right now, whether it's from an injury or an illness or a disease, will be a thing of the past. (laughs) Right now, our broken down bodies groan (laughs) and long for those perfect ones. Here's a third reason. And this one we see right in the book of Lamentations. And these next four, if any of these are why you're groaning, I'll, I'll tell you the answer to it at the end. You can stop the groaning in these cases. Uh, Number three, it's God's discipline. We know this in the book of Lamentations, and we'll highlight it next week in chapter two. But as he looks at the destruction of Jerusalem, Lamentations 1.18, he says, The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. That's part of what led to all this groaning at this time in history. Four, Regret of ignoring God's wisdom can cause us to groan. Proverbs 5.1 says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Jump down to verse 10. He says, Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised Reproof. He says, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Groaning can be the regret of ignoring God's wisdom. It can also be the result of hollow worship. Worship that puts on a great show, but has nothing to do with the way I really live my life. This happened in Malachi. Malachi 2.13, this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because... He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Groaning can come as the result of hollow worship. Number six, church leaders who groan because of people who won't follow. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Listen, if we find ourselves groaning for any of those reasons, you know what the biblical answer is? Confess it and repent this morning. There's two more. Number seven, just the grief over the wickedness around us. You may feel this when you pick up your newspaper in the morning or go to your favorite news site. 
at 5.30 and look at the headlines for the day. Grief over the wickedness around us. You see this in Ezekiel 9.4. God speaks to a man clothed in linen. The Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Looking around, we see what's going on. Sometimes we groan. We grow. Number eight. And like I said, there are probably more. You, you dive in. But number eight is living under wicked leaders. Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. I want to shift gears here and say, uh, I've got three encouragements about groaning. You say encouragements about groaning? Yeah, you heard me right. <laughs> you heard me right. Three encouragements. The first one is an encouragement of perspective. Andy Minio, one of my favorite Christian artists, has a lyric that says, Life is hard, it could be worse. You see this in Jeremiah 45. Jeremiah had a sidekick named Baruch. And he and Jeremiah were going through it because they were being faithful to God. They were suffering. And Baruch started to develop kind of a woe is me attitude. God encouraged Baruch strongly. Jeremiah 45, 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to you, O Baruch. You said, woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I'm weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I'm breaking down, and what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is the whole land. He's like, look around at you at all this destruction. And do you seek great things for yourself, Baruch? God says, seek them not, for behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all places to which you may go. He's saying, Baruch, be thankful for the air you're breathing because many around you do not have that privilege at the moment. Perspective, life is hard. It could be worse. Second, groaning in the Bible is often connected with God hearing and then acting on our behalf. Think of the Jews in slavery under Pharaoh. Exodus 2.23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. 2.24, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And you remember the many wonders he brought on their behalf to deliver them. Psalm 34.18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Groaning is often connected with God hearing and acting on our behalf. Here's the third and to me the most encouraging thing about groaning. God the Holy Spirit who lives inside every believer groans for us. He enters into our lives in such a way he knows everything you're going through, everything I'm going through. And listen to what it says, Romans 8, 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. 
for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Have you ever been there in the middle of your groaning? I don't even know what to say. It's just this, ah, it hurts. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a precious promise, believer. Nobody knows what you're going through better than God the Spirit. And nobody knows the mind of God better because He is God. So on the one hand, He knows what you need, what I need before we even ask. And He knows the perfect will of God. And He takes those groans for us to His Father to intercede for you and for me. Now you see why I say there's encouragement in the groaning. I think about lament. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for Job. I'm thankful for Ecclesiastes. I'm thankful for Lamentations. I'm thankful for many of the Psalms because many nights when I wake up at 3 a.m. and the enemy is hitting hard, and tearing on my soul. Those are the places I turn. Because I see I'm not alone, and there's a God who understands. Listen to what H.L. Ellison said. The Bible finds room for every element of human experience, including overwhelming human sorrow. This can come to the individual, Job, or to the nations as a whole. In such a position, even the comfortable words of Scripture do not always bring solace and a ray of light. Though Jeremiah had set a limit to Babylonian rule, he had told them 70 years and you're, you're coming back, and he had promised national restoration, the hearts of the survivors were too stunned at this moment to appreciate the promises. Even in the era of the gospel, the same thing occasionally happens. It's then that the brokenhearted who turn to these laments discover they're not the first to pass through thick darkness before emerging into the sunlight again. So they realize that their God is the one who puts their tears onto his scroll. Psalm 56, 8, that's what it says. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He knows. He knows. And if you're still comfortable with embracing this side of the walk in a fallen world, I want you to look at our Savior Jesus himself. Isaiah 53.3 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Luke 19, Jeremiah was not the last godly man to weep over Jerusalem. Jeremiah wept looking back. Jesus wept looking forward at what was to come at the hands of the Romans. Luke 19.41 says when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you, what groanings do you have today? What are you groaning with? And as you ponder that question, I want you to listen to some lyrics from Amy Grant a number of years ago. She wrote a song called Better Than a Hallelujah. Some of the lyrics say, God loves a lullaby and a mother's tears in the dead of night, better than a hallelujah sometimes. God loves a drunkard's cry, the soldier's plea not to let him die, 
better than a hallelujah sometimes. The woman holding on for life, the dying man giving up the fighter, better than a hallelujah sometimes. The tears of shame for what's been done, the silence when the words won't come, are better than a hallelujah sometimes. The chorus says, we pour out our miseries, God just hears a melody. Beautiful the mess we are, the honest cries of breaking hearts are better than a hallelujah. I highlight that word honest on purpose because that's what it's really about. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're groaning with. And he would rather you be real with him about it than paste on some fake plastic smile and say some hallelujah that you don't mean in the least. Take your groaning to the Lord. As you think about what groans you have today, I want to invite you, if you haven't yet, take a half hour, an hour, and read Lamentations. Dive in there. It may help you find words for what you're going through. And then as it does, write them down or at least take your groans to the Lord verbally. And here's another step that will take a little bit of a step of faith. Lean on another believer. Lord knows that's why we're here together. We're all groaning. Can we just get that out there? Can we own the groan? (laughs) We're in it together. And that's why he put us together. You don't have to groan alone. As we do those things, I I invite you just to see if you don't discover that lament can become a very real part of your life of worship in this world. I close with the words of Larry Crabb. He said, life is unspeakably sad until you recover the lost language of lament. Then it becomes speakably sad and an authentic journey into God's presence begins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word does not beat around the bush, does not offer us some pie-in-the-sky theology that has nothing to do with the fallenness and the brokenness and the pain we feel in this world. It offers us real hope, not pious promises that have nothing to do with reality. It offers us hope even as we grieve, even as we groan. I thank you for the words of Hebrew that, Hebrews that we have a, a merciful high priest who is sympathetic because he has been tempted in every way as we are yet was without sin. And it's because of that that he offers us grace and strength in our own time of need, in our own time of groaning. Thank you that you know Jesus, a man of sorrow, we have a God who knows sorrow because he took it on himself. Thank you. This week as we process through our own groanings, I pray that you'd help us to bring it to you. And even after that, when we don't know what to say, what to ask, we claim that promise that the Spirit right now is groaning for us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.